0: As Ben was sharing from the story, we are a city on a hill. As we sang in that chorus, we are, it's First Baptist Church, a city on a hill. And to be a city on a hill, that book beautifully illustrates we need each other. One grain of salt by itself doesn't make much of a difference, does it? Doesn't really, can't really preserve, doesn't really flavor your food. One lone candle a city doesn't make. We need each other to be that city on a hill. And that's why this next section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these next 12 verses, is all about relationships. Specifically, Jesus gives us instruction on how we can help each other shine brighter and be saltier. To be a a meaningful, transformational community of salt and light, we need to be able to speak truth into each other's lives, to hold each other accountable, to spur one another on to good deeds. But the problem is, is that doing this as fallen, fallible human beings who have egos, who have moods, can get a little messy, can't it? We can kind of get uh, our feelings hurt. We might wear our feelings on our sleeves. We might take offense. Remember what Jesus said the night He washed His disciples' feet. He said, by this all men will know that you are My disciples if you do what? Love one another. It is the way we love each other. It is the way that we live in community together. It is the way we give and receive constructive criticism and helpful uh, words. That is what shows to the world that we are truly the disciples of Jesus. You see, love must be <clears throat> the number one rule for our lives together. The number one rule of life for us as Christians is love. And this rule of love goes by other names in the Bible. For example, in Matthew seven twelve, we call that the golden rule. The golden rule says, "...so in everything due to others..." what you would have them do to you. It's another expression of this rule of love. Another one we call the second of the greatest commandments. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are different ways of saying the same thing. That we are to treat each other with love, with respect. See, the problem with neighbors, the problem with being brothers and sisters in Christ is... All that closeness sometimes can kind of rub us the wrong way, can't it? I mean, think about how neighbors can be. Sometimes neighbors compete with each other, don't they? Try to keep up with the Joneses. Sometimes neighbors annoy each other, don't they? What's he doing up at mowing the yard at 8 a.m. in the morning? It's a Saturday. Doesn't he know any better than that? You know, can't he trim those, those shrubs? They're encroaching on my property. You know, we can get sort of petty with, with our neighbors. And think about how brothers and sisters can be. Those of you that grew up with a brother or sister, you love your brother or sister, but there were times, weren't there, you wanted to strangle them more than hug them. So it can get messy, this living in community. Sometimes things can get pretty heated and sparks can fly. It's no wonder the Bible describes these relationships as iron sharpening iron. Yeah, we sharpen each other, but there's a lot of friction that makes that happen, isn't there? So how can we live in meaningful, transformational relationships, giving care to each other and correction to each other as needed? So in Matthew 7, 1-12, Jesus gives us the answer. And it's based on His rule of love. When we look at the first six verses, we're going to see that Jesus is pointing out the inherent problem with us trying to fix... Other people or to force on them our wonderful words of advice. The problem is, is that we often do these things with arrogance. We do it with a demanding attitude. We do it by comparing ourselves to them and sometimes condemning them. And then in verses 11, in verses 7 through 12, Jesus illustrates a more gracious way, a more effective way to love and care for others. One that requests other than demands. One that offers rather than forces. So let's look at what this rule of love means in Matthew 7. The first thing it means when we live by the rule of love is it means that we don't blame. We don't condemn. Listen to what he says. Do not judge, for you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, Jesus has already touched on this thing in the Beatitudes when He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And after the Lord's Prayer, you remember Jesus tells us that if we want to receive the forgiveness of God, we've got to be willing to give forgiveness... To our brother or our sister who has offended us. What we give will be measured back to us. Now Jesus' command here in verse 1, do not judge, has got to be one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in all the Bible. He isn't talking about judges in a court of law. It's not what he's addressing. He is talking about how brothers and sisters in Christ bear responsibility for one another in a loving way. Nor is Jesus telling us here that we are supposed to suspend our critical thinking as if it would somehow be wrong for us to determine the difference between what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. That's not what, Jesus isn't telling us to turn a blind eye towards sin and and, and to back down from calling it what it is. That's not what he's saying. Because if we did that, how could we then follow his later admonition about discerning between pigs and dogs and what is sacred and not and and, and how to detect a false prophet? We couldn't do those things if we didn't rely on our critical thinking skills. What Jesus is saying is that we are not to be fault finders. That we are not to destructively tear each other down. Rather, he wants us to constructively build each other up. The great theologian John Stott said it this way, The command not to judge is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. See, the problem with judging other people is that we are unfit judges. You and I, we're unfit judges. And we're unfit judges for at least two reasons. One, we're fallible. We are fallible. That's why Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We are fallible. He's warning us not to assume an authority that we think we have, or an ability that we think we have, that ultimately belongs to God anyway. God is the great judge. God is the only one who doesn't make any mistakes. God is the only one who sees the complete picture and knows the full story. He is the judge. We are not. He is infallible. We are not. Only God is omniscient enough to judge the motives of another person's heart. Can you see into the heart of the person sitting next to you? Can you? Then how can you judge it? How can you judge it? When you meet someone... Excuse me, you encounter someone during the day and maybe they say something that rubs you the wrong way. Maybe maybe you see that they're doing something that you think looks a little questionable and and you go on the attack. You might not even say it, but in your heart and mind you go on the attack. You're criticizing, you're judging, you're condemning them. You know what, you don't know their story, do you? You don't know what they've experienced that day. You don't know the battles that they're fighting. You have no clue what's going on in their life, so how can you be judge and jury over them? That's why God's Word tells us to be kind toward one another, to be compassionate toward each other, to be merciful. Because if we show them mercy, then God will show us mercy as well. But another reason we're unfit judges isn't just because we're fallible. It isn't just because we don't see the complete picture. We don't have all the evidence. But it's also because we are fallen. We are fallen, sinful people. Our own bent towards sinning causes us to exaggerate others' faults and minimize our own. We do that, don't we? You know, in fact, sometimes we see our own faults reflected in someone else and so we judge them even more harshly. Because it makes us feel good. John Stott, once again, he says this way, We experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. We don't have to address our own problem. We can kind of come down on ourselves by coming down on someone else. It's the plank and the speck of sawdust. This picture of Jesus. Now, if you're like me, I stuff just. I just. You know. I, I don't. I don't do I stuff. Okay. When I go see Dr. Bob, it it takes a lot of courage for me to get up to go and see him, because I just I don't do all that. So this this analogy kind of gives me the heebie jeebies just a little bit. The idea of a plank of wood sticking out of someone's eye. But but Jesus is painting us a ridiculous picture here. Somebody who's got a two by four sticking out of their eye, they got a and and, and they're trying to reach down and, and get a speck of sawdust out of someone else's. It's ridiculous. But isn't that what we do? It's not what we do. We have these, these problems in our lives that we dismiss and we minimize and instead we focus on the little problems in someone else's life. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18 that's a beautiful illustration of this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a righteous, religious guy and a despised, traitorous tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we have a judgmental, self-righteous spirit, we do what this Pharisee did. We compare ourselves to other people. Then we condemn the other people as not as good as I am. And then we distance ourselves from them and we develop a spirit of contempt, of hatred toward this person who isn't as good as me. And that expresses itself in prejudice in bigotry. It expresses itself in a refusal to listen to the other side or even consider their point of view. We become entrenched in our ways and communication and relationships breaks down. And it sounds like what's going on in Washington, D.C. these days, doesn't it? So to avoid that hypocrisy, we must at least, at least apply the same standards to ourselves that we hold other people to. And we must at least be as generous and gracious towards other people as we are towards ourselves, right? Jesus isn't telling us here to ignore other people's faults. In some sort of an I'm okay, you're okay kind of way. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying we see our own faults first and we deal with them before we try to help anyone else with their sin. How many of you guys have ever flown on an airplane? Okay, when you fly on an airplane, they give this little presentation. Now they do it on a little video on the back of the seat in front of you, but but they do this little presentation and part of that presentation they say in the event of an emer- in the unlikely, I love how they throw that word in there, in the unlikely event of an emergency, oxygen masks will drop down from the ceiling. And what do they tell you about those? What do you do first? You put it on yourself before you try to put it on your child or whoever else might be with you that needs help. Why? Because if you don't help yourself first and you pass out, you can't help the other person. You have to deal with your problem first. If my motive really is to help someone else grow in their faith and overcome sin in their life, I must first make sure I am growing in my faith and I am dealing with my own sin. Now based on this teaching of Jesus, Paul gives us his own presentation for how to deal with an emergency, a spiritual emergency. And he talks about this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Real quick, a few things we notice from this. First, the certainty of the sin. Until you are certain of someone's waywardness, Unless you know, proof positive, this person has a problem, we should live by what 1 Corinthians 13 says. And that's that we should believe all things and hope all things. That our natural bent should be toward believing the best about each other, not assuming the worst. So that's the first thing. The certainty of the sin. The second thing is the condition of the one who's confronting. Paul says you must be spiritual. In other words, you must be living and walking by the Spirit. That's a high standard. Is your sight and your wisdom and your motivation, is your attitude toward this person a spiritual one or a carnal one? better make sure of that first. The second thing is the correction is restorative, not punitive. It's not to teach someone a lesson. It's not to make you feel good or to make them feel bad. It's to restore them to a right path, to a right relationship with God, and a right fellowship with the church. The correction is restorative. The caution Jesus, uh, Paul gives us here is for gentleness and humility. Because we have to recognize that you and I are just as capable of giving in to this sin as that person. No one in this room is above it. It's like the old expression says, There but for the grace of God go I. And so Paul says, you've got to be aware. Do this with gentleness. Do this with humility. Because you know what? You could give in to the same temptation. And then Paul ends by telling us to carry the burden. We carry the burden. We weep with those who weep. We enter into their shoes. We help them carry that burden of shame or guilt so they know that they're not alone. Because didn't Jesus, didn't He carry the weight of our guilt and our shame on Calvary's cross? See, we're too often like the Pharisees in Jesus' parable, thinking that there is something inherently glorious and righteousness in condemning other people. Why else would we do it so much? Why else would we have that kind of critical attitude? Paul asks a rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians 3.9. He says, if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, if, then how much more glorious is the ministry that brings Righteousness. See, Jesus told Nicodemus on the night that he gave us the great verse John 3.16, in that conversation, Jesus told Nicodemus that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Condemning, boycotting, protesting. These are not the way the world is saved. This is not the way that Jesus approached His ministry. This is not the way we bring people into a right relationship with God. The rule of love is. Consider how Jesus restored the woman caught in adultery. What did He say to the Pharisees who were ready to condemn her to death with rocks in their hands? He said, whichever of you has no sin, go ahead and throw that first stone. And they couldn't. Because none of them were sinless. They dropped the rocks on the ground and they walked away. And Jesus picked up the woman and He said, Who is left here to condemn you? And she looked around and she said, No one. In fact, the only person left there who could condemn her, who had no sin and could throw a rock at her, was Jesus. And He said, Neither do I condemn you. And then He set her on a new path of life. He said, Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus didn't downplay that this woman's lifestyle was sinful, did he? He said, Go and sin no more. But he didn't condemn her. He didn't punish her. He didn't seek to humiliate her. He loved her, he forgave her, and he set her free to experience a different kind of life. Think about Jesus' approach to the woman at the well, or Zacchaeus, or Matthew the tax collector. He didn't condemn any of these people. He invited them to follow Him. He invited them into a new way of life. The only people Jesus ever seemed to condemn were the self-righteous and corrupt religious leaders who claimed that they knew the law so well. And so Jesus held them to that high standard. And so when we read verse 5 about the plank in our eye, we have to understand something. The plank Jesus is referring to here isn't just any old sin in your life. The plank that Jesus says you have to move from your eye first is the sinful tendency we have to condemn. Think about that. Condemnation is the plank that we have to remove. Because I cannot help anyone else grow in their faith or become sin in their life if I come at them with a condemning spirit, can I? I can't be restorative. I can't be humble. I can't be gentle. See, as children of God, we must not have a condemning spirit. We must not buy into Satan's lies either that God condemns us. We have to reject those things. And when people try to condemn us, we have to say, you know what? We've got spiritual Teflon on us. It won't stick. Because guess what? For you and I as believers, there's no such thing as condemnation. There's no such thing as condemnation. Say that with me. There's no such thing as condemnation. Because listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. Therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. He goes on to say that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And I love what he says in verse 33-34. to Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who can condemn us if Jesus the risen Christ is interceding for us? If there is no condemnation for us, we should not have condemnation for others. Now, the other thing that we don't do when we're living by the rule of love, the second thing we don't do is we don't force wonderful things on other people. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. One of the saddest chapters in American history, I've been watching the miniseries on, on, I've been watching on Netflix, the Ken Burns series called The West. It's a fantastic series about the history of the Western United States. One of the saddest chapters in both American history and in the history of the church is when the Spaniards and then the British and then the Americans came to the Native American Indians and tried to force wonderful things on them. Now, I have to believe that these Spanish missionaries, I hope at least some of them in their heart, really thought they were coming to save these Indian souls. But without ever trying to learn their language, they would enter a village, they would read an edict in Latin, and when these Indians didn't immediately profess faith in Christ, they were massacred. They would come in and they would throw water on them to baptize them into the church and then without explaining any of their European customs or traditions, they would force these Indians to give up their customs and traditions and adopt theirs. Is it any wonder the Indians rose up and rebelled and resisted? They tried to force wonderful things. They tried to throw pearls to pigs and give what was sacred to dogs. Now, I'm not calling Native Americans pigs and dogs. Neither is Jesus. Jesus is not contradicting himself. He is not now asking us to make a judgment and determine what people are pigs and what people are dogs. Jesus in this verse is not asking us to make a judgment call on who is worthy to receive the the gospel and who needs to be just written off as beyond reach. That's not what he's saying in verse 6. It's not about the unworthiness of the pigs and the dogs. It's about the unhelpfulness of the pearls. Let me say that again. It's not about the unworthiness of the pigs and the dogs. It's about the unhelpfulness of the pearls. Because if you go to a wild pack of dogs or 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 a hungry herd of pigs and you try to feed them pearls, what's going to happen? Jesus says they're going to trample them underfoot. Then they're going to turn on you and tear you to pieces. Because guess what? You are edible. It's about giving something to someone and they're not ready for it. They don't understand it. They can't receive it yet. It's not what they need. It's not helpful to them. We come at people sometimes with our superior spiritual understanding that we can give them exactly what they need. We become self-righteous and arrogant and presumptuous as to think we know their story and we know what they need. And we don't take the time to get to know them to listen to them, to learn their story, to discern their need. And we manipulate and we control. And that's not living out the rule of love. That's not the way Jesus ministered to people. Now, why do we tend to do this? Why do we tend to do this? It goes back to what we talked about last week. Remember last week in Matthew 6, verses 25-34, Jesus talks about how the pagans chase after the temporal things of the world, things that ultimately don't matter, and that that chase is futile because they never can really obtain or secure those things anyway on their own. See, we judge others and we ignore the plank in our own eye so we can point out the dust in someone else's eye. And we cast our pearls to pegs because we are acting like pagans. When we do those things, we are acting like pagans. We aren't trusting that God is in control over someone else's life. We don't trust that God is working in that person's life. So we take matters into our own hands. And we think that we're the Messiah. We think that we're the Savior. We think that we're the one whose job is to fix that person. We get impatient like Moses. Remember how Moses went out into the desert or went out and saw some of his fellow Hebrews and they were working and an Egyptian was abusing them? And Moses did what? He killed the man. And he thought, man, my my, my Hebrew brothers, they're going to receive me as their Savior. I've come to their rescue. Is that how they received Moses? No. They weren't ready for it. And they didn't need someone to come in and kill the Egyptians for them. They needed someone to come in and tell them about God and to deliver them and rescue them from slavery and into freedom. They weren't ready yet. Moses wasn't ready yet. He got impatient. We can't force people into something they aren't ready for. It's not our job to convince anyone of the truth, nor is it your job to convict anyone of sin. In fact, Jesus says in John 14 and 15, that that job belongs to the Holy Spirit. Are you the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. So then how do we offer ourselves to each other in Christ-honoring, God-trusting, love-reflecting ways? How then can we speak truth into each other's lives? How then can we hold each other accountable? How then can we spur each other on to to love and good deeds? That's what Jesus talks about in verses 7-12. through We ask for and offer what is needed. Now, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 next week. But He talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. And about a father will will give good gifts to his children. If they ask for a piece of bread, He's not going to give them a snake. He's going to give them what they ask for. He's going to give them what they need. And in verse 12, He says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is illustrating an important kingdom principle. The principle of reciprocity. We give as we would want to receive. We give only to those who ask. And we only give them what they ask for, what they need, what they can use. You know, the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day taught, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Confucius said, do not to others what you would not wish done to you. But Jesus takes those negative teachings... You know, don't punch someone if you don't want them to punch you. And he turns it on its head. He takes it deeper. He says, do to others what you want them to do to you. Treat others the way you would want them to treat you. Honor the free will and self-determination that God has put in everyone else around you because they're made in his image. Don't try to manipulate them. Don't try to force things on them. Don't try to harass them into righteousness or manipulate them into goodness with your wonderful pearls of wisdom. Don't do it. What we can do is in a consistent way, we can shine brighter and we can be salty. Because if you are living out your faith, if you are growing in your faith and you're dealing with your own sin, then the world around you and the people around you will take note and they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Shine brighter and be salty. Second, be childlike. Several times Jesus says that kingdom citizens are like little children. And children are incapable of the kind of condemnation and manipulation and discrimination we've been talking about. Children, think about it, they see the inherent good in people. Children are trusting. We must be like little children. And finally, we have to have the timeliness of the snake and the guilelessness of the dove. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 10:16. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Think about it. A snake knows how to lie in wait for the right moment to attack. He's timely. He's patient. And the dove is without guile. He's innocent. He's pure. His motivation is pure. That's why he's the symbol of peace. We are to be as pure and innocent in our motivation and as patient and timely in our action as the snake and as the dove. Consider your relationships. How you operate with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your fellow church members. Is there a plank in your eye that you need to come and lay at this altar this morning? Maybe you need to come this morning to Jesus and let Him do a little eye surgery on you today. And you just say, Jesus, take this plank out of my eye. Help me to deal with my critical spirit. Help me to deal with the way I'm so unhappy about things and I make everything about me and I'm making the people around me miserable. Help me not to be judgmental, Jesus. Help me to deal with the sin in my life. This altar is open for you to come and to do some business with Jesus about the plank in your eye. Maybe you need to ask someone to forgive you for your hypocritical and your judgmental attitude. Maybe there's some relationship you need to have a little bit more humility in. You need to take the time to listen and get to know somebody better. Maybe for you this morning, it's time for you not just to stop condemning, but maybe today it's time for you to realize that Jesus does not condemn you either. Maybe today you need to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who came and died to save you from your sin, so that you can go and sin no more. I'll be standing down front with love nothing more than to help you know that Jesus, who does not stand here to condemn you, Whatever God has said to you, whatever He's laid on your heart, this is the time for us to respond. This is the time for us to commit ourselves to Him, to let Jesus shine through us into this dark world. Would you stand as we sing, Shine, Jesus Shine.